This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In the 1990s, scandals at Aberdeen Proving Ground and the 1991 Tailhook Association Annual Symposium brought attention to sexual harassment and violence in and around the U.S. military. In this decade, the military has been associated with such behavior as that of several MPs at Abu Ghraib Prison. But what does this all mean at home? Should we assume that these scandals mean that people in the military are violent and coercive with their families? Probably not. But certain aspects of military life, like increased access to weapons or exposure to violence, mean that even suspicions of domestic violence are taken very seriously. In fact, in the military, it's required that you report it when you suspect another soldier might be abusing his or her spouse. But one question that emerges when someone does report possible domestic violence is exactly what is going on between the soldier and their spouse. That's where Marianne Forgey comes in. Dr. Forgey is an associate professor of social service at Fordham. She is leading a team that's working to help train social workers in the military to determine the best ways to help families when domestic violence seems to be occurring. That project's taking place at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and it involves using actors to help social workers learn to recognize common causes and common signs of domestic violence. The technique's called standardized client methodology. I met with Dr. Forgey recently to talk about her project. Now, explain to me this project that you've begun. Just flesh it out for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a two-year research contract with the Army, and we'll be developing a training program for social workers whose job is to figure out basically what the problem is when a soldier and their spouse have a situation of domestic violence where there's either physical, sexual, or emotional abuse happening. And we'll be uh, developing this program using a method called standardized client methodology. Um, And that basically is using actors who are trained to take on different types of cases uh, to basically help the social workers learn how to um, ask the important questions, to learn how to ask those questions in a way that hopefully the soldier and or the spouse will feel comfortable in answering them. Now, how did you come to be involved with this project? Yeah. Well, actually, I was I, I, after I graduated from um, Boston College with my MSW, I uh, started working in child protection. And... Um, you know, do again doing assessments, but focused on on child abuse, neglect, uh, and to be honest, I actually wanted to uh, live abroad for a while, and so I applied. I, I looked into what the possibilities would be as a social worker, and uh, there were several. One was working within the military system as a federal employee, civilian. Uh, and the other was working at like a, as a school social worker within embassies. And because I really, that wasn't my experience, my practice experience was more in the area of uh, family violence, um, it, I thought I'd have much more of a chance to work in that way. So that I, I applied, and fortunately, I think it took about two years to get offered a job, but um, I was offered the job in Wiesbaden and went there. And that's actually, so I had no experience at that time with military culture. I, I didn't 
no, I had to really learn that culture. And um, I have to say, I gained a tremendous amount of respect for um, the military in terms of their trying to address uh, the issue of domestic violence. And I've really respected their attempt to integrate the research as much as possible uh, into their assessments. And that's where my interest began. And since uh, getting my doctorate and and becoming uh, a professor here at Fordham, I've continued that interest uh, from a research perspective. So this project actually is, is one that's combining both my research interest and my practice interest by teaching social workers, hopefully, how to do assessments that are grounded in research. And so that's what I'm doing here now. (laughs) You mentioned assessment, which is just basically figuring out what's going on in a particular situation. How does it work in the military? Well, the military, including the Army, has a mandated reporting law for domestic violence, uh, very similar to what all the states here in the U.S. have in terms of child abuse reporting. So whenever a situation of spouse abuse is reported by a hospital, by the military police, by neighbors, um, the social workers within the Army, within the Family Advocacy Program, which is the specific program that deals with domestic violence, their responsibility is to basically interview each member of the couple uh, separately to assess you know, what type of domestic violence has occurred. One, if domestic violence has occurred. But secondly, if it has, what type or types of domestic violence has occurred, as well as what we call risk factors, meaning what other kinds of things are happening to the couple that perhaps have put them at risk in this situation. And the risk factors can be, you know, related to the person who's who's being violent, and the risk factors can also be related to the person who's being victimized. So the social worker has the responsibility to do this type of what we call assessment to understand the situation as best they can for the purpose of providing the most appropriate intervention. Uh, First of all, intervention that will keep uh, the violence from not happening again to keep the person who's been victimized safe. Um, And then to develop more long-term interventions so that they can each continue to live basically in a situation of nonviolence. With the program that you're working on, how does it work with the actors? We are going to recruit the actors actually from Fort Bragg um, because we feel that it's important that we have actors who know that particular context and they know the, the Army environment there. They are not professional actors. They will not be professional actors. They will be people in the community, living in that community, who understand the military environment and have an interest in uh, participating in this project. Um, We'll recruit them, and then we will also uh, screen them to make sure that they have the ability to take on the roles of the various client situations. So if you're one of these social workers, an actor will come in and they will act like sort of a classic case Yeah, actually, classic is interesting because I'm not sure there is a classic case, and that's part of what this is about. What the research has been telling us for some time is there's not 
a unitary uh, pattern, that there are various patterns of violence, including the different types, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and some combination thereof. There are situations that are much more dangerous than other situations, and we have learned what some of those risk factors are to look for for the most dangerous situations. So the actors will be taking on a variety of patterns um, that have been identified in research. We're just not making up these patterns. Uh, they do exist, and the, they will be based on research that the military specifically has done. Um, and they will be taking on risk factors that have also been identified in research and that the military has identified. Many of the situations will be real cases, but we will be working with the scenario a bit just to make sure that there's enough in there for training purposes. Now, you mentioned early on the particular policy of the military as relates to domestic violence. It's different from sort of the world at large. Can you talk about that? Yes. Several states, and I actually can't name the specific ones, do have mandatory reporting laws for spouse abuse as well as child abuse. But for the most part, most states here in the U.S. only have child abuse uh, mandatory reporting laws. The military has had a mandatory reporting law for spouse abuse since about 1980, and they believe that it's important because of the uh, responsibility that the commander in particular, the unit has for the soldiers and the fact that soldiers like police officers, et cetera, have, you know, more access to weapons. It can be a much more dangerous situation when there are weapons around. And I guess the belief is that they, they want to act as quickly as possible when they hear of possible abuse. And so the way they act is they refer it to the Social Work uh, Family Advocacy Program to assess. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning with Marianne Forgy. Forgy's an associate professor of social service at Fordham, and she is heading up a team that's working to improve Army social workers' ability to assess domestic violence. Let's return now to the conversation. Now, in the military, obviously, the risk factors for domestic violence are going to be somewhat different than outside of the military. What are they and how are they different? Yeah, there's some that are very similar. For example, the, one of the risk factors we, that are, that's very common that um, we hear about a lot are, are the history of uh, abuse in one's family of origin, witnessing abuse uh, in one's family of origin. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a clear risk factor, and it, it doesn't happen just in the military, but it's also a, a risk factor uh, within the military. But the military has some risk factors that perhaps might be happening more often. For example, PTSD is a risk factor for domestic violence, as well as often a consequence of domestic violence. But it's, it's a risk factor in the sense that it happens uh, at the same time that domestic violence is happening. And we really don't know for sure about cause and effect because we know when there's domestic violence, often the person who's, who's violent can have PTSD 
and the person who has uh, has been victimized, sometimes a consequence of that. What I'm saying about the military is that that particular risk factor may happen more frequently may, because of their situation and what they're being exposed to. And we do know that that is in the current situa- situation with Iraq, there are the soldiers that are returning have a much higher level of PTSD. So that's a risk factor that might be more frequent within a military population, even though it's a risk factor that has been identified within a civili- the civilian sector as well. So PTSD is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? So, yes. yes. And has there been a higher rate of domestic violence reported among yeah, th- th- those statistics are not out yet. Although anecdotally, I think there's a concern with the you know the soldiers returning that because one of the symptoms of PTSD is uh, one, and it doesn't always happen with PTSD, but can be you know violent behavior. So of course there's concern that we do know they are ha- have higher levels of PTSD. So I think the concern is that as a result the reports and the incidences of domestic violence will will rise. And again, anecdotally, there's there's concern that it is rising, but there's no hard and fast statistics at this point in time connecting the uh, PTSD currently with domestic violence. Now, we then you have sort of the risks that exist for the larger population and then also things like post-traumatic stress disorder. What other risks are unique to or exacerbated by military life? Another um, risk factor is just the amount of uh, the amount of moves that happen within the military, a very high stress factor involved with moving. You mean uh, the way that military families move around yes, a lot? Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, the amount of, like, separations. Um, the other that, again, is a risk factor of concern, but no hard data, but it's clearly of concern, is we do know that um, certain types of head injury can be a risk factor for domestic violence. That's been documented in the research. People in the military have, you know, higher levels of head injury given their role and what they're doing. So that's another risk factor that, you know, needs to be paid attention to. Uh, Again, it might not have anything to do with the domestic violence, but if it does, if if it's in some way related to the domestic violence, if it's exacerbating it, if it's uh, in some way, um, again, aggravating it, uh, then in terms of intervention, we would need to pay attention to that as well as to helping with the, the specific behavioral issues. Now, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I don't know this, but it seems like I should before we go on. How are people's lives in the military structured? When you sign up for the Army, are you sort of instantly sent to an Army base where you subsequently live with your family unless you're deployed? Uh, they're sent for, and I, I can't, I don't want to uh, pretend to be an expert in the way that the military is structured with the questions you're asking, but there is a training period. And for the most part, because it's time limited, the family would not be a part of that. And of course, with these deployments that are happening, the families are not going. But in uh, in Fort Bragg or say at Fort Hamilton here in New York City, mm-hmm. you have families living there. Do they do they permanently live on the base? Yes, yes. And there's also off 
base housing that they can also have. But a percentage, for the most part, lives on the base. What's also, though, happening is when they get deployed to I- Iraq or to you know another uh, Afghanistan, uh, often the families that were living on the base from which they were deployed will sometimes go home to extended family members and then return once the, the soldier comes back. So you have these communities entirely of soldiers and military yes. that are all living together. What are their lives like? It really depends on the installation that they're living in. I mean, Fort Bragg and Fort Hood. Fort Bragg is where we're going to be doing the training. Fort Hood was a, uh, I had done some uh, research there about four years ago. Um, they're hu- absolutely huge. They're cities almost among in, in themselves. They have their own schools. They have their own, you know, grocery stores. So there's not as much of a ne- interaction, especially at Fort Hood, I would say, with the outside community. As if you have a smaller installation, you know, you're you're much more dependent and in interacting with the larger community. So you have a really tight-knit community, and you have also a chain-of-command situation where somebody might not really feel very comfortable making allegations against somebody who's above them in rank. I feel like domestic violence could be really underreported here. Yeah, mandatory reporting is very, very controversial. I personally have mixed feelings about it as well, as as many uh, professionals, I think, in this in this field do. On the one hand, you know, hopefully as a result of mandated reporting um, of spouse abuse, some situations get addressed and people are safer. However, I think there's a disincentive often for getting help because mandated reporting, in a way, it sets up a system where you, that you don't want to be a part of. It also, I think, a concern I have that's shared by others is uh, it takes, does it disempower the victim? Should it be an outside uh, entity, here the army, who's in some way coming in and saying this situation has to end and you have to do certain things? Do you know what I mean? Or, for example, the states that do not have it, for the most part, it's up to the people themselves, for example, the person who's being victimized, uh, to decide when they need help. Unless, however, they're arrested, do you know what I mean? And then if the uh, legal system gets involved, then often, you know, they don't have as much uh, control over their situation. But with mandated reporting, it doesn't happen at arrest. The the sort of the outside entity gets involved at the very beginning, uh, or it can be at the very beginning. I mean, if there's an argument that, like I said, gets out of control, the military is in there assessing. And I think some people feel that that's sort of infringing in a way on their rights and on their sense of let me decide when I need help or I want to get out of this situation. Um, The military, I have to say, in terms of mandatory reporting, there's been some changes this summer that are just beginning, I think, to get implemented, where they're actually allowing certain situations not to be, not having to be reported. It's called restricted reporting. So I, I know it exists. I know they've, and it's actually in response to some of the issues that I've raised about mandated reporting and trying to, you know, sort of steer some of the cases into a a, a less of a mandated situation. 
where they enter then the cent- there's a central registry you know it all gets recorded etc so but that's about all i can say about it the way things stand right now how would it work from say i am a person in the military and i hear next door that there's a violent argument going on with my two neighbors and i decide to report it what would then the process be with me and with them the social worker would not have to divulge who reported it. That would be confidential so information. Then what mm-hmm. would happen with the couple? There would be an assessment, uh, and again, separately. They would not be interviewed together. Uh, it would be a separate assessment, but often done by the same social worker, which is a little bit different than in the civilian sector, where it's it's quite rare that the same social worker would interview each member of the couple, even separately. In the, in the civilian sector, there's sort of, there is a system set up for, that services victims, and there's a system set up that services perpetrators. And for the most part, you don't end up having the same social worker, you know, working for both organizations. You know, they're separate. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I had this morning on Cityscape. We'll talk about some of New York's quirkier attractions. That's Cityscape with George Bodarki this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We're talking today on Fordham Conversations with Marianne Forgy. Forgy's an associate professor of social service at Fordham, and she is heading up a team that's working at Fort Bragg in North Carolina on a project that they're hoping will improve Army social workers' ability to assess domestic violence. Let's hear the end of that conversation. Do you have situations with mandated reporting where people report on each other as a means of reprisal or just, you know, just to be to make trouble for another person? I I think that happens, um, but I have no idea of the statistics. But hopefully with good assessment, (laughs) you would weed those situations out. I just I keep asking these questions because while it seems like a great idea, mm-hmm. it seems like such in a way such a naive idea to think that people who are living in sort of in a military culture which is very much about loyalty to your peers and compliance, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, people who are above you mm-hmm. in the system that you would subsequently go and report on somebody yeah. because you thought they might be doing something. Yeah. I think people are unfortunately well aware of what can happen if people sort of don't get involved. At Fort Bragg, there were several domestic homicides that were very well publicized. I think people know that we're not necessarily just talking about something that'll blow over. And so I think uh, particularly, you know, people in the military where they, they know how situations could go awry may be willing to report it to hopefully help somebody, not necessarily snitch on them. The thing is, you have to believe in the helping system. I think if you don't believe that your report could end up helping somebody, it's probably going to be much more difficult to report it. And you would feel like all I'm doing is snitching on them. But if you have more faith in the system of help, then, you know, probably your reporting would come much easier. And I, you know, I think it really, again, depends on the installation. You know, if people see it as a helpful place, 
if uh, and and that's that's the job I think of the social workers uh, working on that base is to to put the word out there and to be seen as a helpful place to to be and and I don't think that's always the case. Now, women's roles in the military have changed a lot in the last few years. Have you seen changes in patterns of domestic violence as well? I don't really know about changes. Um, the study that I did several years ago was actually a study of uh, enlisted female soldiers married to civilian male spouses. I just looked at that population um, in terms of the patterns of violence and the and the risk factors. There was a variety of patterns that we identified. The most common pattern was what we termed a low-level bidirectional pattern, meaning that both were participating in, in acts of violence. And this, this information came from the enlisted female. She was surveyed, not the civilian spouse. So that's where those statistics came from. But again, the, the one thing that um, I always, whenever you hear about bidirectional violence, the acts alone should not be... Um, the only thing considered. We might know that, you know, both were pushing and shoving and slapping, but that doesn't tell you if someone was more fearful, doesn't tell you the consequences of that behavior. And that's absolutely critical when you're assessing it. But we do know that there's a lot of, you know, back and forth going on. We also found more, you know, in terms of, of if you ask the question, well, of the female soldiers and the male spouses, who was being, you know, more victimized? It was clear that the female soldier, there was a much higher incidence of, of male to female, what we termed unilateral violence, as well as what we termed male to female asymmetrical, which is a, you know, it feels, it feels like a mouthful, asymmetrical, bidirectional. But what we meant by that was the male's violence was much more serious than, than the female's violence. She was being, reporting that she was being violent, but it wasn't at the level of his violence, and she was often getting more injured. But again, the, the largest grouping of patterns was in the low-level bidirectional at this being reported at the same level. So it's happening within that population. I was very interested in doing that study because that particular type of couple within the military had the highest rate of domestic violence proportionally. They're a much smaller number within the military. You know, the majority of couples are male soldiers married to female spouses. But this particular group had the highest rate proportionally. So we were interested in what's going, you know, why is that? And um, in retrospect, I mean, in looking at it, the male spouses, there was a packed number of risk factors that they have, male civilian spouses, that they think might explain that high rate uh, proportionally. You know, they were the ones who, they were often either unemployed or partially employed, which is a risk factor for domestic violence. There was a fairly high alcohol level, which is a risk factor for domestic violence. So, you know, I can name others, but again, they had an awful lot of the risk factors, and that's perhaps why 
that particular couple had, you know, the, the highest rate proportionally because they're a much smaller number. I'll ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. Another thing that's changed a lot in recent years is that soldiers have been deployed for very long periods in Iraq. Have you seen differences among those soldiers? You know, I can't, again, I can't say for sure. Just with with applying for this research contract, uh, again, that's where I heard anecdotally that they were concerned when the soldiers were returning, given the, you know, that there, it seemed like there were more cases of domestic violence being reported after several months of their return. But I don't have hard and fast statistics on that. That was Marianne Forgey. Forgey's an associate professor in Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. Up next, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. I'm Nora Flaherty. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. Two days past 18, he was waiting for the bus in his army green, sat down in a booth cafe there gave his order to a girl with a bow in her hair he's a little shy so she give him a smile and he said would you mind sitting down for a while and talking to me i'm feeling a little low she said i'm off in an hour and i know where we can go so they went Would you mind if I sent one back here to you? I cried, never gonna hold the hand of another guy too young. But then they told her waiting for the love. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.